welcome to Everything True Detective, our podcast on True Detective. My name is Justin Blizzard. I am here with Keith Krepko, and we are going to talk about episode four. What is it called? Down Will Come, maybe? Is it four? Why did I think it was four? It was five? episode four. Four. Yep. And I believe it was called Down Will Come. I have. I don't know if that's right. And to be honest, I don't care if that's right. <laughs> um, last week, I did not share any notes with you because I wanted uh, my reversal on the feelings of the episode to be a surprise. Right. On the series, my reversal on my f- feelings of the series to be a surprise. This week, I did not share any notes with you because. I literally don't have anything to say about this show. Mm-hmm. Um, this last episode, after listening to podcasts and reevaluating my position multiple times and rewatching all of the episodes and coming to the conclusion, conclusion that I was being too hard on the series and that I actually like these things and I actually like how Paul's storyline is being handled, which I still do. After all of that, after watching episode four, it felt to me like, as a father, it felt to me like the moment when you look at your kid and you see everything is all right, and then you turn your back for two seconds. And turns into a racer head, and maybe? all hell breaks loose. And you turn back around and you're like, wait a minute, I just looked at you and everything was fine. And now everything's terrible. Like, right. what happened? What happened when I turned my back for two seconds? That's what it felt like to me. <clears throat> okay, yeah. I I also feel like the podcast that turned you was True Detective True Weekly. True Detective Weekly. And Are they late this week? I feel like... Yeah, they haven't posted anything. Yeah. And that's the thing about that podcast. Very smart guys. And that's the thing that... Exactly. That's the podcast that made me reevaluate my position because I was agreeing with everything that they said... I recognized everything they said, but for whatever reason, I didn't like the show and they did. Right. So that made me think something has got to be wrong here. I've got to be missing something. So I went back and rewatched everything. And lo and behold, I was starting to, you know, the things that bothered me still kind of bothered me, but not as much. I thought this episode was just a, it wasn't even like, it wasn't anything. It was so boring that I fell asleep, which it's not saying much, right? Like there's nine Z's in my Twitter handle for a reason, (laughs) right? I fell asleep. I had to re, I had to like watch it again and then realize, oh, I missed like 20 minutes of this episode. It was just so boring. Right. I wanted to use this episode to try and crystallize my thoughts and feelings on this sure. show. So all of that being, so all of that to say, you have a few ideas, you have some things you want to talk about. I'm pretty much, I'm not done with the show. I just don't have anything else to say right. at this point. The same problems for me persist. I feel like the show isn't going anywhere. I don't feel like this episode did anything for the story outside of the last five minutes, which I didn't like, but it's still a development in the story, right? Something has to happen after that. Right. So So I guess I guess what I wanted to do was 
start with an area that I felt kind of bad with last week, which was me trying to articulate my feelings on Paul. Okay. And I and not doing a really good job, I think, in articulating really what I was feeling and trying to say. So I kind of wanted to use start with his character and use that as a launching off point to try and make broader kind of um, tie in the broader ideas that we've been talking about with the show into one coherent approach. Because okay. I feel like I've kind of been back and forth and all around. But I think this episode helped crystallize my feelings about this whole season. Mm-hmm. So with Paul... I want to start with, and, and I guess, did you have this feeling too overall? Did you feel like you'd missed an episode when this episode's like 10 minutes into this episode? I mean, I have felt, even up until this point, I feel like I'm not really sure what the story is, right? Like, mm-hmm. like it's it's going, it's taking the opposite, I mean... Matthew McConaughey and Marty and uh, Woody Harrelson from the first season are good detectives, right? Mm-hmm. The detectives in this season stink. They are terrible detectives. Like, Rachel McAdams is a dummy, right? Like, the questions she's asking these witnesses are stupid, right? <laughs> like, she asks the mayor's daughter what... Uh, the person in the back room could be talking on the phone to Casper about. And it's like, how is, you know what I mean? Like, that's your job to figure out. You're supposed to be figuring that. How is she supposed to know that? She's not having the phone conversations, right? Right. And then she goes, they're at like the site with all the markers, right? right? And she's talking to the city planner or whoever that guy is. And she's like, why would somebody be going all to these sites, all these different sites a bunch of times? And the guy's just like, I don't know. <laughs> right? Like that's you're the detective. You figure that out. Right. You know what I mean? Like these people stink at their job. Maybe she just talks aloud. She's not Maybe. She's just talking to herself. But because of that I feel like because it, I I don't know. I guess it doesn't make sense because to me it seems like because they're taking such a measured approach to this is how an investigation works and they're going around and you're seeing them talk to every single person and blah 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 blah. But for some reason, that feels more confusing to me than it was in the first season where it just was like, here's a revelation, right? Right. Or, it was just, you know what I mean? It's like, it just feels like you have you have more of the detectives trying to figure this thing out, which just makes it seem kind of more confusing. Like, I just, I, I have no idea outside of no, outside of assuming that like the mayor has something to do with the shootout at the end and knowing who is good and who is bad more or less i'm really am unsure of of what is going on so do you place any of that blame on the fact that this is not coming from one director's perspective on this story no i blame it all on nick pizzolato okay i mean and that's the question too like how much and this is something we didn't talk about in the last episode and other people did bring up and the only reason I didn't bring it up is because I thought when I saw it and when I thought about it, I thought I was just being dramatic, maybe, mm-hmm. was the idea that the Asian director, 
who's a total douchebag in episode three, was a dig at Kerry Fukunaga. Did you think about that? Oh, man. Because he's an not... Asian director with long hair. <laughs> okay. And in the episode, he's a douchebag. Right. And, you know, there's been a lot of rumors about Pizzolatto and Fukunaga not getting along. Right. So... I don't, and know and how, and I don't know how much of it is not necessarily the singular director thing, right. but it's Pizzolatto not being reeled in, right? right? And, that, and that fits kind of the, um, the level of commentary we're working on with season Ex- two. Exactly. It's, it's not out of step for him to be like, do that purposefully. Right. Yeah. And be like, thinking that maybe you got away with it. Mm-hmm. And really people are like, oh, no. Um, okay, so <clears throat> kind of... Not really, I guess, dealing with because look, the the, the storyline of this episode for me is so convoluted, you know. I don't I don't see the benefit of even walking through that aspect of it, other than to say they track a watch that was sold, they pull a print off that watch, it leads them to this um hideout of this kind of street drug lord. So that's all that happens narratively. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a few things with the individual characters, which that's what I want to focus on. So kind of hitting the characters just in context of tying together what we've been saying, mm-hmm. hopefully in this episode, that's my goal. Mm-hmm. So that we end with a coherent approach to this season. Okay. So, so before we get into that, did you, on a very generic general level, did you like the episode or not? You know, I kind of don't want to like tip okay. my hand right, until the sure. very end when, 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 when we tie it together. Okay. Um, so I want to start with Paul. Okay. Um, okay. So with Paul, we have apparently another night or later on that night or whatever, he gets back with his old army buddy. Apparently he's like blackout drunk or something. Right. He's blackout drunk and he ends up spending the night with him. Right. And... His reaction to spending the night with his buddy, did anything stand out to you in that scene? In terms of maybe he was being overly dramatic or maybe uh, his acting not that great? I e- think either or. I think we're in that realm. <laughs> and, and both. We, we are straddling both sides of those ships as they are pulling him apart. Um. Oh, sorry, were you going to say something? No, like I, other than I didn't really mind it. I thought, you know, I, I mean, I think it's in line for what he's been doing so far this season. So here's the crystallizing thought I had about him in that scene. Paul mm-hmm. feels like a homophobic's idea of what somebody struggling with their sexuality would look like. I watch a lot of movies and a lot of TV. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a character dealing with their sexuality in this way. He is hyperventilating and he is yeah, furious, maybe disgusted. And all I can think of is he that dis- like he's done this before. You know what I mean? Like they apparently had something in the right. desert, which he does not talk about, but he's reacting as if, you know, he was like, like all I could, 
Sorry, go on. Well, I think the the way that he was reacting on the sidewalk is -hmm. because his motorcycle was stolen. You don't think it ties no at all. Into I mean, the, I think it, it. I think that's a sort of a scaffolding onto it, right? But I don't think it's a purely reactionary to. I just slept with this dude. I okay because he he even says to to uh, Colin Farrell that his bike was stolen. No, yeah, but I kind of felt like what they were doing with that. His escape is his bike. When, sure. When, when he's dealing and he can't deal emotionally with whatever it is, he's. He's just got to go ride his bike 100 miles per hour out in the desert and get it together, right? Like the first time that he's like driving his bike and going 100, he's only thinking about his attraction to men, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what you is that what you're thinking? That that because of what he just yeah, went through. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking his sexual dysfunction is fueling that ride. Maybe not whatever happened in the desert to give him these scars, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe the big reveal at the end is that the demon that he's been fighting isn't necessarily the fact that he's gay, but is that he did something horrible in the desert. Mm -hmm. But I'm getting the sense more and more that his main struggle is with his homosexuality, right? By taking away the bike, you're, you're leaving him only to confront the feelings that he has in those moments, in that moment. And in that moment, he is that like upset at having spent the night with a with another man, which which fuels his decision later on at the end of the episode. What decision is that? When he proposes to his oh, oh right, right, right. non girlfriend at right. that moment, because yeah, she's she's pregnant and right. he, and again, all of that I I see it as all tying together. It's all just springing from his... I mean, you can't say, though, that because the bike was taken away, his emotions are are purely focused on this spending the night. No, no, but I think it's a guy. No, but, but I think what you're doing is you're taking away his outlet, right? So he would take all of that rage and and disgust or whatever he's feeling, and he would have ridden on his bike and ridden it out of him. Sure, but you're also still upset because your bike just got stolen. Yeah, of or course. Or possibly towed. Of course, but it's heightened. That, 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 that's what I'm saying. Of course he's upset that his, that his bike is gone. But in that scene, I didn't take it as he is okay with what happened before. And again, I point to the end of the episode to show that, right? And that him having his bike stolen or missing or gone is now forcing him to have to have an outlet, another mm-hmm. outlet for those feelings. And all it turns into is like Hulk. Like he's like stomping back and forth, up and down yeah. the um, you know, the sidewalk, like breathing heavy and hyperventilating. I think that's him dealing with those with his conflicted sexuality. Uh well for me I I can't I don't have a uh, because I don't have a a base for I don't have a a way to relate to the character explicitly because I don't struggle with the idea that homosexuality is wrong right and because I don't struggle with homosexual urges you know what I mean so I can't relate to the frustration you would feel of being one way Mm -hmm but thinking you shouldn't be that way. You know what I mean? So 
so I find it hard to to say that it's unrealistic how it's being portrayed just because I don't know how it would be portrayed. So yeah, that kind of ties into our disagreement going back to last week. I think for this whole season, Mm -hmm. we've disagreed on our take of Paul as a character and how he's written. And I feel like he's written all the way at 11. And apparently a lot of people aren't picking up on those. Um, I dare to call them hints. (laughs) those overt (laughs) references to his sexuality. And I find his reaction to those things. Like the only other thing that made me think of, I, for whatever ungodly reason, watched get hard earlier this year. Right. And the one, one argument that people had against that is they're, they're calling it kind of homophobic Mm -hmm. because part of, and the premise of the movie is Will Ferrell's trying to get lessons to get him ready and trying to get training to get him ready for prison. Mm-hmm. And one of the big training is he's going to have to learn how to, you know, perform oral sex on other men. <laughs> and he's horrified, right. right? He is disgusted. Yeah. And the level of like of, of his negative reaction outstrips what people were arguing, what he was being asked to do. Mm-hmm. It was like, he can't even conceive of that happening between two men and he can't process it. And it's horrifically, it's the worst thing that could happen to him. And what people are kind of saying is, well, you know, it's not for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you can't conceive of it, it shouldn't mean that you respond this way to it. It's not, it's not that kind of mm-hmm. horrific mm-hmm. of a thing <laughs> to happen to anybody. Right. Not saying, and again, I'm not talking about, you know, rape is horrific, Mm -hmm. but in the way that he was responding to being presented with the act itself. Yeah. The act itself with this, I felt like, again, it's like, this is a guy I've, and I couldn't help but feel like in writing this character, this is a guy who probably thinks like, that's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. right? Right. For you to have, for that action to happen. And he can't even conceive of it. Mm-hmm. So he writes his character as a guy who like, I can't even deal with that happening, right? But he's had a previous relationship with this guy in the desert. You know? So it, to me, it's not equivalent other than he's been written way over the top. That his reaction to spending one night that you can't remember with this guy is to like <laughs> furiously huff and mm-hmm. puff, you know, outside on the street, you know, because he's having to confront... Again, his sexuality. Mm, yeah. I just feel like people would have a little more nuanced reaction to that. Again, unless Paul has a greater issue. But I deeply, I'm deeply suspicious of him having a deeper motivation for his, you know, personal issues than his sexuality. Mm-hmm. Which I think in that case, he's being way overwritten, mm-hmm. way overwritten, you know? I I mean, I'll say this. I had way more issues with the way he was holding his gun at the episode at the end of the episode than any of uh, his with the, the close to the chest stuff. up stuff. Yes. Okay. And his hand flexing and he was constantly like twisting it sideways. It was just, ugh, it really bothered me. So anyway, okay. I guess, I guess we disagree again. I, I, I hope that I crystallized it a little better. My perspective uh-huh. But that that was the thought that I had in watching that scene. Yeah, but what if 
Paul is homophobic. Yeah, it's he. Well, I mean, he probably is in the right. sense of how he how he operates because he can't even conceive of these things, right? Mm-hmm. In some ways, he, he probably is. But that. But my argument is, I feel like from a from a written standpoint, he feels like a homophobic's idea of a man dealing with yeah. I being, get, I get that being gay, but yeah, I mean, I get that. I just. He feels like basically the Fox News idea of how someone, right? That's what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. But I don't, I just don't necessarily agree with that just because I don't know how someone who's not homophobic deals with struggle. You know what I mean? Like is, is struggling with homosexuality, is that inherently homophobic, right? Because if you're struggling with the idea, you must think that it's wrong. And if you're thinking homosexuality is wrong, then you're homophobic, right? Is there any way to s- struggle with that without being homophobic? Well, no, no. I, again, I don't. I I'm fine with with him right. being that way, but not in the way that he is acting out that that internal but that, struggle. That also, I mean, that applies to everybody in the series, sure, and the sure. season. Not yeah. just Paul. Yeah, I, mean, I, I feel like it's that's the nature of the beast, basically. Right. I'm I'm reaching for another metaphor, and it's kind of like somebody who, you know, only um, takes a bat and smashes, or a huge hammer like smashes walls, like does renovations, right. and then you ask him like take a chisel and do some detail work. On like a statue, he's just gonna right. smash it. Right. You know, I feel like that's kind of like what Pizzolatto is doing. He's like, "Oh, I can't write these kind of characters. We'll watch this." And his gay character is so over the top written in like the way that he's dealing with this is like, man, this guy is really outrunning some personal demons. And if this is his his idea of a man, a, a man like a normal person dealing with their sexuality in mm. some ways in the context of a show. I, I would hate to see what other kind of personal conflicts he views, like right. how, how people work those out because this seems just, it just a touch over, over the top. Mm. You know, Paul needs to, I think in some ways have a more, and I think he would have a more nuanced approach if he'd done it previously, right? This isn't a guy who's never done it and thinks that it's like, horrific and gets no pleasure from mm-hmm. it this is a guy who's done it before mm-hmm. you know so you think he'd be dealing with it a little bit more on that level right instead he seems to me to be a guy responding to like i don't even know how this works this is yeah. horrifying right. you know okay all right yeah we'll whatever to, we've got four episodes left to figure it out yeah you'll have to edit <laughs> some of that down probably that was that was long okay uh now i want to talk about i i want to jump straight to ray Okay. Well, no, you know what? Let's talk about Frank. Okay. Frank, uh, who has uh, impeccable dental records, we found out. Oh, my episode. goodness. That he went to his dental records, I I laughed out loud. <laughs> because I wanted the, the, you know, bad guy that he was talking to, Kingpin, whoever. Uh-huh. I want him to be like... It was a it was a metaphor, Frank. 
<laughs> Frank, I'm not really talking about you eating too much sugar and losing You're your taking teeth. this a little too literal, Frank. <laughs> Be like, Frank, really? You're going to come at me with your with your dental records? And I love that that was, the, that was it. He's like, I've never had a cavity. Like, right. that was his, his retort. Well, I think he's also being figurative as well. Maybe, but in his delivery, it made me think like <laughs> Vince Vaughn could literally have not thought about him being yes. uh, speaking in. in it, it's definitely the all. epitome of what I said last week, where everyone is Rust Cole. Yeah, and everyone is Rust. There is not a normal person in this season, right? Vince Vince Vaughn is like, look, I like Vince Vaughn. He's miscast. Yeah, and I think this episode more than anything else crystallizes it. And I'm going to go back to an old argument and say, uh, my wife and I are watching Deadwood now, linking off of that first episode. Yeah. We watched Deadwood again after watching this episode. And there are lines in Deadwood that should not work. And the way Ian McShane just sells it and emphasizes certain things, you go, that, that, there. Mm -hmm. That's how you take stylized dialogue and you you find out where the emphasis is. You find out where your delivery can kind of make it work. Mm -hmm. And Vince Vaughn is just a flat, like his approach is to drain all emotion from his lines and then deliver like a, a uh, kind of baseline monologue staring at the ceiling. But I don't even think that's his approach. I think that's Pizzolatto's approach because you could say the exact same thing about, Rachel McAdams is doing that. Uh, uh, Colin Farrell is doing that. Taylor Kitsch is doing that to a certain extent outside of when he's actually yelling. Every single one of everybody's lines is... Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, that's it. Right. It, it could be, but but I don't even see Vince Vaughn trying to find... Which is so weird because his humor is based on him finding the funny cadence. Yeah. In, in a phrase, and in this, he's, he's just flatly delivering his lines and I, I think trying to be menacing. Mm-hmm. But instead, it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And I still don't know whether to take him as a menace or not because all of his threats, and even when he does the violence that he does, it, it, it just doesn't work in the yeah. context of his character, you mm-hmm. know? Not even saying that doesn't work in the show because, like you said, everyone's Rust Cole, everyone's that way. But his character just does not work for me. No, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's a bad. It stinks. And I, I'm sorry, his his wife as well. Like, she just didn't have enough to do. Right. And in a little bit that she was given this episode too, she too is just like again, not finding an interesting way to deliver her lines yeah. for me. And the other thing, she's always around. Why is she always around? Like what mob boss does all of his business with his wife right next to him? Right. right. Is that not weird? Well, yeah. And, and I think it's weird that as the show's gone on, I thought that she was more included than she is. Mm-hmm. Like you realize that, no, she is really just around because mm-hmm. when he makes business decisions, she'll ask him or whatever, be like, don't worry about it. Or yeah. I'm not going to talk about it or whatever. Right. I'm like, well, I thought, I thought you guys were like partners in this yeah, thing. Like she was literally just in that meeting she's asking you about. Right? <laughs> <laughs> she's You're like, right. yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. That's right. Yeah. So I feel like 
Frank and Pizzolatto forget about her. Right. And it kind of shows where she, yeah, she's just written to be there. And and now she's just, again, turning into like the, what's going on, Frank? Mm-hmm. You know, nothing. Right. Type of character that 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 people have a problem with. Yeah. Because the, the female characters don't have any dimension other than, you know, I don't like what you're doing or what are you doing? <laughs> what did you feel about Frank's stance on adoption? I'm not taking someone else's burden. Right. Grief. Oh, yeah. I'm not taking someone else's grief. It seemed like a very hard stance for someone who in episode <sighs> one or two was like encouraging Colin Farrell to have more okay. kids. <laughs> Here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. And this is why I wanted to start with him and then go to Ray. Because Ray is flip flop, right? So I don't know if I say it on the podcast, but I think two episodes ago, two weeks ago, I was talking to somebody. I said, I think this is Ray's redemption story. Yeah. This is all Ray's redemption story. To take Ray, where one of the first of 10 lines uttered from his mouth is him punching out a dad in front of his 12 year old kid and then threatening to decapitate and rape, you know, his parents, whoever, in the lawn. Right. Um, to then morph into now, like, he is a good guy. Yeah. Right? Sure. The other thing, too, and this is totally side, right? This is. I mean, I wouldn't say as much as he is. I wouldn't say he's a good guy as much as he is. He's just kind of, like, being kicked around at this point. He's kind of given up on doing everything, and everyone's just kicking him around. His bosses are kicking him around. His ex-wife is kicking him around. Frank is kicking him around. Yeah, but he's but he's coming around too, right? Like he's he he's like here, take my bat. Like he seems to be letting go a little bit. Yeah, two two epi- or no last episode, he was threatening to burn down an entire city <laughs> if she tried to get custody of his not son. Mm-hmm. And now he seems to kind of be saying goodbye to his son and like, you know, this mm-hmm. is part of our legacy and whatever, I want you to have it type of deal. The other thing, this is a total side note, I'm not, this is not a judgment call on the show, mm-hmm. but when his son looks back at the house and then looks back and he's gone, that was a conscious decision on Ray, right? To disappear while his son was not looking. <laughs> and I wanted to know what was that thought process like? And then how did he, in his kind of overweight, you know, kind of <laughs> gone to see itself, like, <laughs> I wanted to see him quietly, right. like, run off behind a bush no, and, like, hide. Have you seen the Simpsons uh, gif online where it's, like, Homer, you see Homer walk out of the hedges and then something <laughs> happens and he slowly walks back, back and just disappears. The- <laughs> That's exactly what it was. But my thought during that scene is what parent in their right mind sees that their son is talking to somebody <laughs> to in the backyard bush. when it's pitch dark outside Tells them to come inside, and then hears them be like, I'll be in. And you're just like, oh, all right. There's no lights where he's at. <laughs> right. What's he doing? Yeah, you can see him talking to somebody. Is he digging? He's like, just, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, that's everything. It's like, if if you were visiting her, and you said, wait, what's your son doing? What would she have said? Oh, he he loves going out in <laughs> the dark. Right. He's just out there standing. He's just talking to himself in the backyard. 
We don't pay him much attention when he goes out there. <laughs> we don't care. I'm going to call him in, but he probably won't come in. Yep. Yeah. yeah. See. So yeah, those, those two things came into mind. Like, what was Ray's conscious decision to not just like, okay, good night, mm-hmm. <laughs> wave to him? He, he literally wanted to fully disappear. Yeah, I just feel like since the first episode, Ray has been more reactive than proactive, right? Like, of course. In the first episode, he's doing a lot of things. And in every episode since, he everything's just happening to him, and he's just going along. Well, and what I feel like, the the gunfight at the end, I think, was... I took it more as a thematic stance of, of Pizzolatto saying, these three are now united, right? End of the first episode, you have these three disparate characters from three disparate kind of organizations coming together around this murder. Mm-hmm. And one thing that interested me is, how is their dynamic going to work? Because they all have different kind of charges Mm -hmm. from where they're coming from right and ray's dirty and um how is he going to be reacting to these people and he's really dirty and he's really dark right and then you flash forward just three more three episodes later and now it's like these are these three are a unit now they are they're together they're fighting this thing together Mm -hmm. i saw it as a statement of them now their purpose is being linked. Mm-hmm. And I was like, pump the brakes. Like, how how did we, from episode one, and in the character of, of Ray, we see the way that Pizzolatto, like, flips these characters to be like, dark, 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 redemption. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I just wanted to be like, I, I can't forget, again, the level that you've written your characters at, to then just back them down to be like, they're just normal people now, right? They're they're like you and me, and they're mm-hmm. uh, and th- and they're together. And we need to like cheer for them, you know. I was like, no, this yeah. is these these are really bad. Ray has done some really horrific things that we don't yeah. even know the full extent of. And then the other two characters again, enigmas that who cares to answer, right. you know? Um, so yeah, that was my that was my issue with with Ray. Is this is his redemption story? But are you buying his trajectory i mean he's on the full redemptive upswing Mm -hmm. that's the feeling i get are you on that same feeling yeah i guess so i mean i don't see why not and and no matter how it ends right it could end in his death it's gonna be like a righteous death you know what i mean it's gonna be like a redemptive death that i i don't buy this character i don't care if he kills him in the end Mm -hmm. i don't care if I, get, I don't care if he gets his throat slit in the second to last episode and then he's bleeding out in the next episode, shows him with just a, a well-placed mm-hmm. towelette. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, good thing we, we found the spot and we're, we're putting right. pressure. Right. Looks like you'll be A-OK. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care how he resolves it. I'm not, I don't buy this character arc and I feel like I see where, where he's going, however he resolves. Yeah. I, I don't buy this flip-flop. Yeah, I, I agree. He's I, don't make I, I him definitely see use where he's brass going. knuckles on a right. father in front of his son, yeah, and then be like, oh, but you know, you care about him in this shootout, right? Yeah, yeah. And I guess what I was what I was saying by him being so reactive in the past few episodes is, in order for that, that's going to have to in order for that to be believable, he's going to have to be proactive, right? He can't just stand around and get kicked in the stomach for the next 
four episodes and then at the end have some sort of sacrificial death or whatever mm-hmm. and be like, he's redeemed, mm-hmm. right? Like he's going to have to, I mean, I guess nobody is unredeemable, right? So he's going to have to like do something to make things right. He can't just be the, you know, butt of everyone's jokes and that be considered his redemption. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's Pizzolatto's thing is like, yeah, no one's beyond redemption. But I don't, I think, I I don't know if True Detective, I I don't know that I'd want more episodes, Mm. but, you know, in this condensed format, I feel like Pizzolatto writes too much punch into his scenes to convey too much. You know, he feels like maybe there's not enough time. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to make Ray really dark yeah because i want to paint him as that kind of a character to make his redemption that much that much brighter but man you you've overwritten in this time you know i don't buy his transition from what he was doing in episode one to, and, and and that's kind of straight on through right like mm-hmm. annie you know now she's talking to her sister and talking to her dad and whatever and she seems she's not telling him to like screw off or whatever like she was before. Right. Well, and her dad, who's like this spiritual guru, like who seems to be like accepting of every single thing in the world, except for some reason, he's really hung up on the fact that his daughter's a cop. Right. Like he brings it up every chance, every he, chance gets. he gets. <laughs> it seems so weird for a who guy. Who was my daughter like, be a cop? <laughs> so accepting. Right. 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 <laughs> So, um, yeah, so I feel like I feel like that again, this episode kind of crystallized that for me too, where you have the the contrast of the characters that's just way too hot and cold, black and white, mm-hmm. and happening way too fast. Um, the other thing, um, you know, be, beyond the uh, you know, beyond the storytelling aspect of it, um, although that, that that's one thing that I did I did want to touch on. I do think that this episode revealed where the conspiracy lies in this season. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's obviously within law enforcement. So the reason why is now, and this is kind of wrapping up my, my approach on this episode, Okay, the shootout. Mm-hmm. So here's the, the response to, you know, okay, Fukunaga, you're going to do an eight-minute take. Or here's a five-minute shootout, mm-hmm. you know? Um, with bystanders getting shot and a bus driver getting shot up, right. whatever. Um, so anyway, you have, so you have them going to the hideout. And you have apparently a guy waiting for them with a Uzi sitting outside like the window on the third floor or Mm -hmm. whatever. So clearly to me that screamed tip off. I don't know. Or, or they just have a man stationed right Right. there to be like, yeah, I I agree. The, The mayor has set them up. So, yeah. So they've been tipped off. The other thing is the explosion on the floor above. So whether that is a reaction of the police shooting and they hit something or whether it's a planned explosion inside. so For whatever reason. Right. So while the cops are coming over, they're setting up their 
you know, self-destruct mm-hmm. system or whatever. My favorite thing, though, was the oversized explosion that happened up there mm-hmm. and the non-reaction of the guy on the floor below. Right. Like, he did not react at all to an entire <laughs> floor above him exploding. Right. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was really... Um, <laughs> I took note of that. I was like, that's... Wow, that guy is it's hardcore. Impressive, yeah. <laughs> He's impressive. He did not flinch at all. Yeah. Um, so... So yeah, so obviously you 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 have you have the tip off, and you have I think a self destruct um, of whatever they're doing up there of the evidence or whatever. So that to me tips me off that you know kind of the the source of this conspiracy this year is going to rest in either the political office of the people who knew about the raid or in the police force itself. The other thing, and this is again maybe a side observation. So you remember when the guy's like, do you need all these people? And she's like, yeah, better safe than sorry or whatever. Mm -hmm. As soon as the shooting started, did it seem like there were only five of them? Five of the cops? Right. Mm -hmm. Is that just me? No. Like, he's like, do we need all these people? And there's like a room full. Mm -hmm. And then when the actual shooting gets started, I'm like, okay, I see the three main characters. Right. And then I see like the... Loser side character, <laughs> you know, gets shot off pretty easy. Uh-huh. And beyond those four, I don't see a huge present. I feel like some took a wrong turn on the way over yeah. there or whatever. Like, yeah. what happened to the huge presence right. of police officers? No, so. I, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's definitely like... But I guess maybe they reemerge when they get into the open area and they need to start killing everybody, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you start seeing multiple people get shot in the head. At the end, then they kind of come back. Mm -hmm. But early on, you just kind of have the three main characters kind of navigating this space. Mm -hmm. Uh, What did you think of the shootout itself? I thought it was terrible. Really? So from an execution level? All of it. I thought it was was executed terribly because I could not stop laughing at the... Mexican gangster with the double Uzis whose entire body was gyrating as he shot them at the bus. <laughs> and I saw that twice because I woke up for the shootout and uh-huh. both times it's like, this guy looks <laughs> like he looks like um, when he's shooting his guns, he looks like what a B movie actor looks like when he's being shot by Uzis, right. except he's not being shot. He's shooting, he's the, shooting Uzis, the Uzis, right? It's just like so stupid looking. <laughs> right. Um, but I just thought it was like completely like it just felt totally unwarranted. And, you know, not to, you know, a lot of uh, from what I've read, a lot of people are saying, you know, this isn't the first season. You can't compare it to the first season. But when you look at this episode four, they're making a direct uh, connection to the first season because episode four builds up to this big scene at the end. Mm-hmm. So when the show itself is making that comparison, I'm going to make that comparison. And the reason that episode that it worked in the season one, first of all, is just because it's an awesome scene. Yeah. But you have an entire episode that is building up to this sequence. So if the episode on a on a like a line graph from zero to a hundred, the episode starts at zero and it's gradually moving up and up and up until it gets to one hundred at the scene, right? Whereas this episode, it's like it starts at five and it stays at five for 50 minutes. And then all of a sudden at minute 51, it shoots up to 11. 
and the last 10 minutes is at 11 with this shootout. And it just, Mm -hmm. to me, it felt like totally out of nowhere. And it just was like, like I said, the execution I thought was, was, it just wasn't for me. And a lot, and on Reddit, they're pointing out how like the different characters interacted during that thing, which I think is interesting. You can see that like Paul is more or less in his environment and that's Mm -hmm. what he's used to and stuff like that. But, it just felt so over the top. And that's the other thing. Like like you said, at the end of the shootout, you, you get this zoom out still shot and you realize like dozens upon dozens of civilians were just massacred. Dozens of police officers were just massacred. Like it's so unrealistic. And it is like like the 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 outcome is so unrealistic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It just is like for a show that is supposed to be sort of like grounded, I guess. And it, I don't know. It just seemed like completely out of place. I, I agree with your, with your end assessment because mm-hmm. I felt like, you know, one issue that I have with zombie shows and movies like, you know, the, the walking dead. Mm-hmm. So zombies move slow. So when you want them to kill a character, you have to put that character in like a where you know, they're walking to a house mm-hmm. or they're, you know, guard is down. They're walking by a dark room or something. And then out comes a zombie. And you can see those threads being pulled where it's like, okay, we, we want something to happen. So mm-hmm. let's put this character in a dark house for whatever reason. And a lot of times all those situations strain credulity. Mm-hmm. And when the death actually happens, it feels written. It feels like right a zombie coming out from that corner and grabbing mm-hmm. her. Done. Great. She didn't see the corner. The zombie was there. But that's so manufactured. Right. It doesn't feel organic to the story. And it's hard when you make your make your enemies like that to make it feel organic mm-hmm. because... They are slow moving. So you kind of, by being extra careful, you protect yourself really, really well, mm-hmm. you know, and people need to die. So, so you're in conflict there with this one. So many people die. So many people get shot. Yeah. And guess who survives? Right. All of our main characters. Right. And by going so over the top, you make it feel you know, written, mm-hmm. of course they're going to get to the end because they need to get to the end, right? So to me, it doesn't matter. You could have the Mexican gang try to escape on elephants running out of there and mm-hmm. shooting a bazooka off the back of an elephant. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, isn't that cool? And I'd be like, no, because it's all manufactured, right? So instead I say, scale down mm-hmm. your action Maybe do something really interesting, like a super long take, right? Mm-hmm. Show us not just the violence, but all the actions surrounding that violence, right? Take us into it in some ways. Um, and don't worry about the body count. But no, this is like, watch all these civilians get shot in the leg and the head and whatever. Mm. And watch this guy get shot in the head. And then to freeze frame it mm. at the end was... I want to know what it was weird. Yeah. And was he just thinking we did it? 
<laughs> people need to see that we did this uh-huh. and how proud we are that we did this. And it just didn't make any sense to me at all that you'd freeze frame that, that image. And to me, that's like, that's the point of the show, right? right? Look at this. Look what we did. Look mm. at this image. Isn't that cool? And, uh, if, you know, declaring something cool that you've done is the least cool thing you can do. Right. And so I found that freeze frame, you know, kind of, there's my, um, you know, I thought we had it earlier in the episode, but that's my gratuitous, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, too gratuitous, not gratuitous enough for just right moment. Right. Is the freeze frame at the end of episode four. I vote way too gratuitous. Yeah, I agree. I, I would say for that whole scene, it's way too gratuitous. And it's also, I don't know. I understand it's a show. I understand it's a plot device or whatever, but you just would not find nobody would be willing. Like, like there's, there's the end game for the, for the gangsters involved doesn't exist. Yeah. Right. Their assignment is to, like, are they believing they're going to go into this, mow down dozens of civilians and right. cops, and come out alive? Right. Like, you're not going to convince them to go and just kill, you know, dozens of people just to die for it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. this is not going. It's not going to happen. And, and, and that's the other issue with like, you know, with the Yellow King. You have this serving this higher purpose that you that you can believe somebody would be would be willing to like maybe lay down their life if they right. believed uh, a weird mythology right. that, you know, whatever. But in this, no, you have this Mexican gang that to me, their whole point is living mm-hmm. and living up their extravagantly extravagant. M- yeah. Making money as, as much money as possible. Yeah. Not going, going out in a blaze of glory right. for a political conspiracy. Right. And that's also where I I understand the city. I understand the mayor, the corruption of all of it. But it's just as like, you know, I, I, I there's there's going to be no mayor ever that's going to order the death of multiple citizens and police officers and police officers just to like get these cops off a case that he could just be like, you know what I mean? Like that's the other thing I want to bring up. Paul is suspended. Annie in this episode gets suspended. What police department says you're suspended, but you can still work on this other case. No, I've (laughs) never heard that before. I actually respected that because I was like, there's there's a, a a trope I've never seen before. <laughs> you are suspended. By the way, I'm keeping you on this case. Right, exactly. So, what's the nature of the suspension? Right. It, that that I kind of loved. Yeah, it's like the only two cops on the case that they don't control are actually suspended, but for some reason they're still working on the case. Right. So, I mean, you, you think it, to me. You know, if it doesn't end in like a, you know, we, we watched a movie Kill List, a Kill List kind of setup ending mm-hmm. where you're serving some greater purpose or whatever. I don't know what, I don't know what this is about. Like, I, I will, I might love it 
if it gets to the end and it's like the mayor or whatever, he's like, you three shouldn't have figured it out. You know, it's like <laughs> you had so many chances to get these three off this freaking right. case and to end it or whatever. Yeah. And for whatever reason, you guys just kept them on. Like if they end up spoiling the overall conspiracy, I'm going to be like, what? Mm-hmm. Like that, that I might kind of love that. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for uh episode four, period, whatever it's called. Um, before we go, I want to talk about an email that we, that we received from a listener named John. He brought up a couple of uh, points or theories that I thought were pretty interesting. The first one was, is basically the idea that Frank is somehow involved a little bit more intimately with, uh, the rape of Ray's wife than has been let on so far. Either he committed the rape himself or, uh, you know, maybe he's his, his crew is tied to it in some way. Have you, do you feel that way at all? Part of his argument was that Frank is arguing Frank's point to his wife is that he knows it's not him for whatever reason that, that, that they can't have a baby. So that's why she's now looking into it. Mm-hmm. Does that resonate with you at all? Do you think that's a possibility? Does Frank have red hair? In his yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, I definitely, I, I see it as a possibility. I think I see it as a possibility though, only because I have so, uh, I don't have much faith in Nick Pizzolatto. Yeah, I I would like that because it shows what Frank is capable of. Right. I don't I was not scared or moved by him ripping out that guy's grill. Right. Um so yeah, the fact that he could do something that bad would would actually give him a characteristic right. to be afraid of, but yeah. But I don't think that's true. So his other um theory that I thought was actually really interesting and I hadn't I hadn't looked at this scene this way before was that he when he was uh, when he saw the scene with Annie looking at the porn he thought he basically took it as um Annie kind of investigating what her sister was doing instead of it being like this is the thing I'm doing for pleasure or sort of this is my dirty secret I don't want anybody to know in the first episode um, we they have that exchange, and Annie s- seems somewhat unfamiliar with what she's doing, mm. and so he thinks that maybe that is just her looking into it more. I it didn't play like that. I can't yeah. I can't refute that outright, except to say the way that she was bringing that up mm-hmm. seemed to hint at a dark secret mm-hmm. interaction more than this is work. I need to find right. out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The way it played out was a little bit. It, yeah. It's, it felt more like a commentary on porn than anything because she's so emotionless while she's doing right. And, it. Right. And she was watching hardcore. Like right. it was hard. Like even if you're investigating your sister, <laughs> You really gonna well, watch yeah. and a hard thing- and she watched it through that first phone call. It wasn't right. just like, oh, is that my sister? Oh, that is my sister. It was like, that's my sister. There's a right. minute and a half of my sister. Right. right. 
I think with if there wasn't that scene in the first episode with the boyfriend or whatever walking out and being like, oh, I didn't know you liked that. I think it would have maybe read differently to me. But because yeah. of that and because we know there's some sort of like deep-seated sexual perversion. And, and again, I would say because of the length that you watched that video. Right. Um, one thing that we didn't talk about that I wanted to bring up quickly. Apparently Annie has slept with like everyone in her department. Oh yeah. 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 You're, you're, you're right. I wanted to, that, that was hilarious. Yeah. That was hilarious. Yeah. It just is like, okay. And I, that was actually one of the parts that I slept through. And so when I watched it for the second time, I was like, oh my gosh, like this feels, this is getting a little absurd. Right, like I just don't understand what her character is supposed to be. No, no, exactly. Because exactly. at first I feel like I, at first I felt like she's supposed to be the one like competent detective, right? But she stinks. She's a bad detective. <laughs> and then you find out she's not only slept with this one guy, she's now slept with the other guy, right? And they're also throwing names around in that meeting with her boss. And it's like, I have no idea who these who guys these people are. are. Yeah. I don't recognize these names yeah. at all. Yeah. When they're like, he's bringing a charge against your right. complaint. I was like, is that the guy from the beginning? I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that does it. Um, we will be back next week. Unfortunately. <laughs> hey, I'm still open to this show. I'm, I, th- this, fourth episode has crystallized everything that came before in in saying it is it is as bad as i feared it was mm-hmm. and was kind of wishy-washy on but um i and, and i haven't read a lot about this episode i haven't mm-hmm. heard a good defense have you read anything are people defending this episode i honestly i tried i have i was just was so uninterested with this episode that i just didn't even care mm-hmm. i just thought it was so boring um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree. I, I'm still interested to see what is going to happen next, how the show is going to play out. Some of that is because for me, the show has ventured into just bad territory. It just mm-hmm. is a bad show. But some of that is also because there's only four episodes left and I know it will be wrapped up in four episodes. Four episodes, yeah. So I don't have very much more to watch. You know what I mean? So, you know, if that's not encouraging enough for you to come back next week, I don't know what is. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Blizzard with nine Z's. I'm at Things Come Right. And uh, if you want to email me with any of your theories or thoughts on the show, you can find that in the show notes or at the website eipodcast.com. And, uh, yeah, like I said, we'll be back next week with our discussion on episode five. 